My Better Half takes a look at thriving leader in life. Today, host Vanessa Finney speaks with renowned writer and essayist Adam Gopnik about the joys of lifelong learning and his new book, The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery. Welcome to My Better Half on the Jefferson Exchange. I'm Vanessa Finney. This podcast explores how people are thriving in the second half of their lives, whether taking on new challenges or pushing themselves to grow in more familiar endeavors. Here today to share his own experiences with that is the award-winning author and New Yorker staff writer, Adam Gopnik. Over the course of about 15 years, Adam apprenticed himself to various masters in their fields and wrote about it along the way. Those experiences are collected in his new book, The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery. Adam, welcome. Pleasure to be with you, Vanessa. So when I first saw your title, I assumed that it might be uh, exclusively referring to what musicians called call woodshedding, which is that behind-the-scenes work of the, the slow and steady accumulation of these discrete skills. And it turns out you partly meant that, but also something more. So just to begin, if you could explain it in a nutshell for us. It, it, certainly, is re- it certainly relates to that, but I got the term um, listening to magicians, not musicians, but magicians, closely allied. I was spending time, I had followed my then 13-year-old son, Luke, who had become a, a sort of prodigy uh, card magician. I'd followed him to Las Vegas. And uh, you, life isn't complete until you follow your 13-year-old son to Las Vegas. And at 3 a.m., uh, we would gather with the magicians who had finished their work for the night. Las Vegas, a wonderful place for magic because it's still a place of live performance. And the magicians would all come together uh, at a diner for a, an early breakfast or late dinner, and they would talk. And I noticed that they always use this term, the real work. Uh, you know, Floss's illusion. Who's got the real work on that? Or the the pepper smoke uh, gambit. Who's got the real work on that? Or the Erdnase color change. Who's got the real work on that? And it took me some time to understand what they were saying. By the real work, they meant not who had originated the card trick or the stage illusion, And they didn't even mean who did it in the most spectacular way. No, what they meant was who had maximum technical virtuosity in doing a trick and combined with it a kind of uh, empathetic exchange with the audience. Who was it who could really make the trick land because they engaged the audience's mind and didn't just perform with their own fingers. And that sense, right, that the real work in anything we do, the mastery in anything we do, doesn't come from technical proficiency alone, though God knows magicians are the most technically proficient artists I've ever known. It comes from the combination of technical proficiency and um, empathetic anticipation from being able to engage another mind as though it were your own. And as soon as I heard that expression, Vanessa, it made sense across a huge range of activities that I knew already. I knew that the heart of music was exactly not just being mechanically perfect, on the keyboard, but being mechanically perfect on the keyboard and knowing when to introduce imperfection, knowing when to improvise, knowing when to phrase, knowing when to slow down the tempo or increase the tempo unexpectedly. In my own art form of writing, the real work comes not from people who are superb at grammar, that's what a copy editor does, or even from people who have an enormous vocabulary, though having an enormous vocabulary is a great aid to a writer. No, it comes from someone who has a voice, who's able to put that kind of 
technical proficiency in language, along with the ability to reproduce the sound of a recognizable human being. That's the real work. And that's what I went out in pursuit of over the past 15 or so years. You know, it makes me makes my mind jump to the discussion. We won't get into it too deeply, but the discussion about AI, because what you're talking about is technical virtuosity with a special humanity where we can sort of thwart expectations and finesse that. Yeah, I mean, I've written in just recently, I've written a lot about AI because it fascinates me for that reason. And let me let me add right away, Vanessa, by the human content, I don't mean just in some some sentimental, mystical way, oh, the computer can't reproduce uh, uh, human uh, frailty. I mean, the computer, the AI programs I've played with, at least, can't make points. They can't make arguments. They can reproduce the atmospherics of of a, a writer. They can do that pretty well, but they can't arrive at an original idea. And arriving at an original, at an original idea involves exactly the kind of a free-flowing uh, engagement with other minds that I'm calling the real work. Okay, that originality and engagement. Okay. So how did uh, the skill acquisition by masters first grab your attention? It was being with the magicians made me acutely aware because it was so delightful because magic in our culture, rightly or wrongly, is sort of pushed to the margins as a minor art form, right? We don't get a Nobel Prize in card magic, though there probably ought to be one. And so it was fascinating because what I saw in this supposedly minor art which you had to be initiated into because magicians can't talk freely with civilians like myself usually about it. I was the good luck to have a uh, a son who was, so to speak, an enlisted man in the army, and I could overhear what they were saying with him. Uh, and uh, I was fascinated by exactly the way that these guys and women who have this unbelievably proficient technique, I mean, what a great magician can do with a deck of cards, like my friend Jamie in Swiss, who was my teacher, my leader into this world, what they, he can do with the deck of cards will astound you. But he'll always say, the, 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 the trick is not the effect. There's no magic in what I do with my hands. The magic is in what I do with my mind. So that turned me on to that concept. The first really extended a trip I made to it, into it personally, I've never been able to do magic. I can watch, admire, and learn from magicians, was in learning to draw. Because I'd been a, a, an art critic for my sins for 30 or 40 years. And I can't draw at all or couldn't draw at all at that point. I couldn't reproduce the look of a blade of grass. So I went to study drawing with an equally uh, difficult and astonishing teacher named Jacob Collins. And just to give the audience some context, you, um, so you do, you do covers several areas in the book that you set out to build skills in, you know, baking, boxing, you use cognitive behavioral therapy to get over a phobia that you'd been suffering. Yeah, a, a severe phobia. And I talk about um, uh, dancing and um, driving. Yeah, exactly. It's a, there's a big range and music is central to it as well. Right. It's such a range of experience. It makes me think that there's something in there relatable to everybody, if not just, you know, a really good read as a work of immersive journalism, if I can call it that. Um, if you're just joining us, this is My Better Half on Jefferson Public Radio. I'm Vanessa Finney, and I'm talking with best-selling author Adam Gopnik about his new book, The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery, in which he describes taking on a number of challenges, sometimes painful, in his middle age. So to start with the section on drawing, you'd studied art history in college and then grad school. And a lot of the work that you've contributed to The New Yorker since, I think, 1986 has been as an art critic. 
And so we'll get into the lessons, but I wanted you to talk first about your motivation specifically to learn to sketch. What were you feeling at that point in your career about writing about art? Well, you know, you, you don't have to be a great artist to write great art criticism in the same way you don't have to be able to hit a hundred mile per hour fastball to write about baseball. In fact, if you if you had to, no one would be able to write about baseball. None of us who have that skill can do it. But it, if you don't know what it's like to swing and miss at a 50 mile per hour fastball, at some level, you don't understand the kind of the, literally the gut um, activity that the people you're writing about are, are attempting. You don't get it at some level. And so I wanted to learn to draw without any expectation that I would ever be a, a good draftsman, exactly so I could empathetically engage with what a, a Michelangelo or a Manet went through when they went about the business of looking and drawing, because it's not simply a cerebral business. They weren't playing a philosophical or political game. They were trying to mark down in their own individual handwriting what they'd seen. And so I studied with Jacob Collins. And what made Jacob such an appealing teacher, apart from his great charm and intelligence, is that he is, if I may use the expression, an absolute hard ass about life drawing. Uh, you know, it, most teachers now will give you a lot of license and they'll tell you, oh, you, you know, however you choose to express it is good for me. And in effect, we'll pin it up on the refrigerator the way we do with our kids' drawings. And Jacob believes that art took a fantastically wrong turn around 1855. You know, a lot of, there are a lot of conservative art people who don't like Jeff Koons or don't like Andy Warhol. He can't stand Manet. He can't stand Corbet. He thinks that Matisse and Picasso are charlatans. That's, I don't share those views. I didn't share them then. I don't share them now. But boy, that's a good person to rub yourself up against. Somebody whose expectations and beliefs are so different from your own. So Jacob put me to work looking at naked bodies and at human faces, just the way artists have been doing since the Renaissance. Uh, in a, He has a wild atelier uh, here in New York where you open the door and you're stepping into 1854. There are plaster casts of great classical nude sculptures, you know, the discus thrower and the, the javelin thrower. And it's filled with people who are working as, as life models in the nude, who your job is to draw. It's very uh, fascinating old uh, exchange between the model and the artist. Um, and Jacob put me to work. And here was the thing that was so surprising to me. And if I may say, Vanessa was the principle that turned out to be, if not universally, astonishingly widely true. What Jacob put me to work doing was not to say, look harder, look more acutely, open your eyes wider and draw what you see. No, that's an almost impossible thing to do for someone like you or me who isn't naturally uh, accomplished at drawing. I was so unaccomplished that I would hold the pencil like a dagger, like Lady Macbeth's dagger, and stab away at the uh, at the paper. And the first thing Jacob did was get me to loosen my wrist and gesture up and down, simply make kind of um, swirling curlicues to loosen my wrist. And then the next thing he did was to tell me to look at faces the way I'm looking at yours right now and say, just superimpose a clock face on Vanessa's face and then try to describe precisely where the tilt of her head is relative to that clock, clock face. It's, it's the tilt of her throat and, and forehead at five minutes past one. Is it three minutes past noon? Right now, you're at about one minute 
past noon. And he would really argue with me and say, no, I don't think it's one minute past noon. I think it's one minute and maybe 20 seconds past noon. So you would have to make these fantastically fine calibrations in a completely abstract way. And Jacob had a beautiful name for that. He called it making tilts in time. And he put me to work for weeks just making tilts in time. So there, there was these very counterintuitive subroutines, these stubbornly resistant little skills that I was putting together. Did the same thing about drawing the pattern of shadow and light on the surface of a, of a naked human body. If you just try and mark it down, you'll be lost. But if you start looking for surprising shapes inside it, if Jacob said, look for the outline of a small African nation or look for the profile of a snooty butler. And that was the way he believes that you can shake up what he calls the symbol set that we all, the stereotypes of seeing that we all carry around in our heads. Here's the amazing thing is you start doing these things, making tilts in time, finding uh, the outlines of African nations, and simply by persevering in these very stubbornly resistant counterintuitive steps, over time, they begin to become, to provide the seamless sense, illusion of actual drawing. And it's astonishing when it happens. And that principle, Vanessa, that the way we master a new skill is not through uh, wild immersion and emotional commitment, but by making a commitment to mastering all those small steps over and over, we get the enormous gift of this seamless flow, which is exactly the, the flow that psychologists love to talk about, that state of absorption in something outside ourselves that we all seek in life. Right. Well, you were working for, um, how long were you working with Jacob Collins? About two years. About two years. And, you know, a man, obviously, of strong opinions and high standards and original concepts. I thought that uh, the symbol set was interesting how he talked about we all have these concepts. And when you sit down before a canvas, those concepts are, are competing with your actual perceptions. Absolutely. And, you know, we have them because they're useful to us in life, right? We're seeking out information all the time. We're information seeking animals. So it makes more sense for me to be paying attention to your eyes and the corners of your mouth than to where your head is in relation to that imaginary clock face. But if I'm trying to draw what you look like, I need to introduce all these things that are not part of my simple set. Well, somewhere you write about, I'm going to paraphrase poorly maybe, but you say that a lot of adults walk around having a feeling a sense of accomplishment or achievement, largely because we've long ago stopped putting ourselves in awkward situations where we don't have natural skills. You willingly do this over and over. So talk about that awkwardness. And if it paid off, did it give you a new insight into this vocation you have? Writing or into the, each of these vocations I was taking on, because it's true about both. It, I got insights into, into both of them. No, I was writing exactly as you say, about how I literally, Vanessa, had tears in my eyes. Kids say literally a lot these days. I'll repeat that. Okay. Tears flowing from my eyes because I could not do this thing. And I realized that I had stopped drawing. I had not tried to draw since grade school because I wasn't any good at it. And one of the ways we shape our lives as adults to be satisfactory to us is, is to say, I'm just not going to try that. I can't speak French. Or I can't uh, do whittling or I can't draw. And we, when we're in school, elementary school, we're constantly being introduced to these things we do badly. And as we get older, we just eliminate them completely from our repertoire. And part of the point of this book was to reintroduce myself to these difficult things. And what 
the great takeaway for me, one of the takeaways, and I say at the beginning of this book that this is a self-help book that won't help. And I mean by that that I offer no shortcuts to satisfaction. I can't give you a recipe for how to accomplish something. But what I can say is this, that simply the act of recommitting yourself to uh, accomplishments, to a new skill, to mastering it, is enormously satisfying. It will make you happy, even if in the external world, you never become masterly at it. You don't have to become masterly at something to have the internal satisfaction of mastery, to understand what it would be like to be good at it and to take enormous inner pleasure, matchless inner pleasure in your own gradual improvement in something that you may never do perfectly, but you will get enormous pleasure from still doing imperfectly. I think that's a huge takeaway for our listeners and that uh, the satisfaction is in the process. I would love to hear you read a passage from this. Sure. Here's a passage about the one moment when suddenly all of those little stubbornly resistant steps that I'd been studying suddenly came together. I was drawing or trying to draw uh, a nude model named, uh, named Nate. It was a terrible drawing, I knew, but it was not a conceptual schema, a mere cognitive prosthesis of an arm and shoulder. It was some recognizable rendering of the pattern of light in front of me. Jacob came over and said, yeah, that's got some of the shape. I would argue that you could erase here just slightly, he went on. It was, as I say, a terrible drawing. The core was way too wide so that I had given Nate a Herculean expansive torso, way out of proportion to his arms. But the relation between arm and shoulder was almost human almost recognizably true. It was the best thing I had ever drawn. And I realized that I hadn't drawn it as I had imagined I might, God's hand finally resting on mine to steal a true contour from the world. No, I had made it up out of small, stale parts and constant reapplications of energy and observation back and forth. I stood back. The good bit in the drawing was about two and a half inches long not really that good by any standard, but it was a stab at a shape scene, at a pattern of incoming light and shade that made a shape I was drawing. And that, Vanessa, is exactly the kind of satisfactions that I try and explain. It's not just that the journey is worth it, though that's true. It's not just the process is rewarding, but you get these sudden bursts, these epiphanies, when you realize, when you glimpse what the thing is like, when you glimpse the satisfaction that happens. And I, if I may say, I think that those that satisfaction, and we can put aside children and family and so on, but in our life, that satisfaction of the happiness of absorption in a system or activity outside ourselves, that's one of the great ones we get. Right. I think uh, you mentioned cognitive opiate. And yes. So I, yes. I, I like to use that phrase exactly, you know, that the openness to the flow to the absorption of happiness is the most powerful cognitive opiate we get. There are a lot of drugs we can inject in our veins. The drug of approaching an improved accomplishment is a cognitive opiate we put right into our brains. And it's it's matchlessly um, uh, stimulating. So it's not just that we enjoy the process. We get high on on the internal achievement of some level of accomplishment. And I, let me emphasize I make no claims to be good at these things. I talk about boxing as well. Nothing gives me more pleasure than boxing, but you would not want to put me in a ring with anyone except another five foot four middle-aged man 
who's been practicing a sedentary occupation for 40 years. Right. Nonetheless. Yeah, it's almost beside the point as you've written. So you're... And in your, in your writing about these efforts at actually producing art, that's something that you had actually been evaluating for decades. That's a great example of someone not resting on his laurels, right? You're still challenging yourself in this field you're so familiar with, even after you've been accepted as an expert in the field. Now, you had a different sort of inspiration for learning to dance. So tell us about that. Well, learning to dance, I, I took up as a part of my relationship with my daughter. I have an absolutely wonderful daughter, Olivia, who I've written about often. The climax of my first book, Paris the Moon, was her being born in Paris. I wrote a book about um, uh, liberal democracy a couple of years ago uh, that was really a long letter to Olivia, who was just starting a college at that time about liberal values and about why liberal democracies were essential and so on. So we've always been very close. She's got a fantastic mind. And then she went off to university and uh, discovered that she was gay or queer, as she prefers to say. I always say she didn't come out to us so much as she came in to herself. She realized when she was in an environment that gave her those possibilities, what her sexual identity was. I wasn't, not only was I not shocked, I was delighted. I was overjoyed that she was finding such a finding new connections and new forms of fulfillment in life. But nonetheless, inevitably, it, it altered or could have altered our very highly cerebral back and forth uh, argumentative uh, relationship. And so I said to her instinctively, uh, darling, why don't we take ballroom dancing lessons together? And to my delight and somewhat to my surprise, she said instantly, Dad, I would love to do that. And it was at the height of the pandemic when you had to do everything outside, if we if we all still remember that. So we went out to Central Park with a wonderful, a very serious ballroom dancing uh, teacher named Steve Dane, and we learned the foxtrot together. And the foxtrot, learning to dance, first of all, is exactly like learning to draw, learning to box. It's a series of steps, literally, in in dancing, which we do very awkwardly when we start off, at least I do them very awkwardly, uh, because they're, again, a little counterintuitive, right? You lead with your left foot, you follow with your right foot, you drag the foot along. That's what foxtrot is, waltz, you're constantly making a box. The man is always leading, traditionally, and I would say to Olivia, do you want to lead instead? But she felt, no, I want to, I want to absorb, I want to understand this great tradition that's moved so many people. And we went out dancing together in Central Park. And it was our way of having a conversation that because it was rooted in tradition and in physicality was in a way more profound than any exchange we could have had verbally about sexual identity, about our our relationship, about our minds, about our love for each other. And uh, that turned out to be the climax of the book exactly because it captured for me more than anything else the the value, the meaning, the necessity of learning new things as we grow older. I was learning about my daughter in my 60s. I think that's something a lot of parents can relate to. You're sort of negotiating or navigating a new relationship when your child becomes an adult and and starts to form her own identity more. And so that was also a nice account of that. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And we all do that. Our kids are growing. And the point I'd make, Vanessa, is that we're likelier to reconnect with our kids or connect at a deeper level with our kids if we do a drawing class together or a pottery class or we learn to dance together. We're likelier to connect deeply than by carrying on with the same things we've always done with them through their childhood. 
So Adam, I wondered if you could read a section from the dancing chapter. I would, I would love to. It's, it's the, the final chapter, which is combines boxing, learning to box, which had to do with reimagining my grandfather with learning to dance is perhaps my favorite in the book. It begins where we were before. Of course, we could spin it around. You could lead, darling, and I'll follow, I suggested. And I repeated to Olivia the old saw about how Ginger Rogers had to do everything that Fred Astaire did, only backwards, in high heels. The implication being that though ballroom dancing was ostensibly sexist, it was actually implicitly an arena of female power. power. But curiously, Olivia didn't want to try it that way. Not, I knew, out of any allegiance to what her generation had been taught to call gender roles, or out of deference to her dad, but rather out of ironic affection for the old game, for the ritualized steps and formal diction of movement in dancing. Being queer and out made her more eager to learn the foxtrot as they used to do it, just as feeling wholly healthy makes us more ready to try unpasteurized wine and cheese. There was no point in subverting the foxtrot. It was not worthy of subversion. Taking the foxtrot seriously was the right way of subverting it. And then I go on to say um, something about the way that the other is always there for us in everything we do. Evening after evening on the esplanade above the Woolman rink, my daughter dancing after a morning spent in Queens boxing. If one thing weaves together our search for the real work, more even than the rule of small blocks of efforts assembling surprising structures of art, it is that we almost always have a spectator or audience in mind as we do it. We engage in the perpetual play with the invisible other. Emmanuel Levinas, the French Jewish philosopher, once said that we know ourselves only by staring into the eyes of another. That was a reproach to the French philosopher Descartes, who said that he knew himself by his own self-reflection. Levinas would have it, I see another, therefore I, I am. I had frankly always thought this the kind of thing so obvious that only the French would find it deep. But approaching 65, it now seemed to me so deep that only an American would find it obvious. The real work is what we do for other people. We define madness as mastery without an object. The magician's essential murmur is that the subject is the subject. We love to do things because when we do, we are no longer things. We are selves and sometimes souls. With time and luck perhaps to dance, the poet writes, having first had to stumble and then step. But stepping and stumbling are dancing, segments becoming seamless. Time is no one's luck, it ravages us all. Still, I watched the city rat rustle in the bushes, the lights rise in the Central Park skyline, the dance teacher, who must be paid, pressing down on my back. We lead and follow, and somehow, however badly, my daughter upright in my arms, we dance. I love it. You, you set quite the scene there. We have a couple of minutes left, Adam. I wonder if you have anything to say about the general idea of lifelong learning. I, you know, as I say, um, Vanessa, this book is a self-help book that won't help. I don't pretend to be, uh, you know, a, a, a consultant. I will say I am in, I hope it's the second half of life. Maybe it's the last third. Nothing has invigorated me more than pursuing these improbable quests. I will never be a good boxer. Nothing gives me more pleasure than boxing. I will certainly never be a good dancer. Nothing gives me more meaning 
than dancing with my daughter. We human beings are meaning machines. We need meaning in our lives. We can get it from our friends, our lovers, our, our dear ones. But having those things attached to a new struggle, a new skill, a new task, boy, that supplies more meaning in your life at any moment than anything else I've attempted. So I say without a an ounce of snobbery, if you're retired, you're older, you're past 50, you're my age, you're 66, go out and find a great teacher and learn to draw or dance or box or bike or sing, or which I still haven't done, or speak Italian, which I'm still hoping to do. And I guarantee you that quite apart from having that thing that you can do now, go to Italy and speak Italian, you will find that your inner self has a kind of equilibrium and a new access to joy that you haven't had since childhood. Perfect. Thanks so much for talking with me today, Adam. You can listen to this and previous My Better Half episodes at IJPR.org or subscribe to them wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>